Hello there. Welcome to a uh, somewhat impromptu and casual edition of this call-in show, um, which is worth every penny that you pay for it, i.e. zero dollars and zero cents. Because sometimes there are occasions when I just say, you know what? I feel like doing a call-in, and I don't feel like even formulating a very specific prompt to justify my desire, and this is one of those times. I guess if I did have a prompt or did have sort of a motivating reason for launching this room, it's that I couldn't help but be, uh, let's say, bemused by this most recent flurry of focus over an issue that I have actually, I don't know if you want to say covered, but written about and uh, documented in the past, i.e. the proclivity amongst the new cast of elite journalists, elite media members, to put forward their own experience of online harassment or claimed online harassment as a topic of world-altering importance and something that that they need to cover constantly. Um, And that it makes a whole lot of sense for them to use their purported experiences uh, at the receiving end of this online harassment as kind of a representative example for something happening in the larger society. So, for example... Not to single her out, of course, but this is the individual whose latest uh, exploits kind of uh, triggered my my focus on this issue again. Uh, Taylor Lorenz, I, I think, is actually a sincere person. I think she's someone who believes in the virtue of what she's doing journalistically and with her public platform, and she, as you might <laughs> have saw uh, and you should go look at the actual full segment which i tweeted earlier if you haven't seen it yet um she participated in a whole fully produced msc msnbc interview this week where uh she's basically highlighted as the leading authority on this scourge of women journalists suffering harassment or being subject to, quote, online attacks. Now, what is the actual methodology for what it means to be subject to a, quote, online attack? Well, it wasn't spelled out, certainly, by the MSNBC uh, interview. And the um, the segment was based on a study or a survey of some kind that was published earlier this year by uh, MYU by some entity called the Center for Social Media at NYU, or uh, I guess the actual title is the Center for Social Media and Politics at NYU, which sounds like something that you should definitely pay approximately $75,000 a year to be schooled in. And um, the title for at least its commentary headline at NYU promoting this study or promoting this quote of research says um, that the headline is, Gender-based online violence spikes after prominent media attacks. And um, the subheadline is, our research finds that after a prominent male media personality 
targets a female journalist, the prevalence of hateful speech targeting those journalists increases in the immediate aftermath, often taking days to decrease. Now, um, uh, based on what I gather, this is actually not any kind of published study. Um, It's almost like a blog post or an article that was um, generated by uh, NYU in conjunction with the Brookings Institution um, to further along, you know, dialogue around this um, really important issue of online violence. And yeah, by the way, just so you know, like I'm not even really exaggerating any of this in my depictions. Online violence is a concept that was basically brought into reality um, within, I want to say, the past year or so, at least in terms of it becoming a mainstream accepted concept within elite circles. Um, So before the past year or two, it had been percolating as something that allegedly does exist, but only relatively recently did it achieve uh, mainstream acceptance as something that like major NGOs and think tanks like the Brookings Institution endorse as a real concept. Um, And uh, I covered this issue around a year ago at Substack and I I tweeted out the links earlier today uh, because in part I read a full study or a full report that was authored by the International Women's Media Foundation which is an NGO, right? And has um, all kinds of establishment connections. I mean, this is far the farthest thing from a fringe group. Um, it is backed by, you know, some of the most uh, mainstream sources, including Twitter itself, uh, backs this organization, you know, Bank of America, Ford Foundation, and, and so on and so forth. Craig Newmark Philanthropies. You know, it's one of these uh, outlets that are these organs that successfully puts together grant proposals, submits them to foundations, and then lists the foundations as supporters of you know women in, in media or something. And then they get a ton of money uh, in exchange. And in so doing, they kind of popularize and codify these concepts that you, at one point would have sounded to most even kind of elite journalists is kind of ridiculous like what does online violence mean does that mean we're saying speech is violence i mean can we specify or spell out what is supposedly meant by that concept and they hardly do so um when i wrote the this piece uh, actually um a year ago today uh april 2nd 2021 uh, after reading this whole study from the you know the women's thing uh, I, I tried to ask one of the uh, staffers uh, who, who works or one of the authors of the study um, if they could clarify, um, if they could maybe more precisely define stuff like online violence or even if they had anybody involved in the composition of this report who maybe questioned the underlying premise behind it or at the even just – challenged or doubted the ultimate prescription because what did this report from last year ultimately uh, propose? It proposed that tech platforms like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc. ought to change their very uh, systems 
to better accommodate journalists, namely women journalists who are traumatized by their professional activity on these uh, platforms. Um, so uh, Taylor Lorenz's latest travails actually was occasion for me to go and revisit some of the, the thesis that I, I put forward a, a year ago. Because here's something that I wrote which I um, stand by and which I think is actually uh, more and more been, been borne out as, as more and more correct. Um, and let me just pull it up real quick. Uh, jeez. Sorry, one one moment. Just had it and uh, seemed to have lost it. Okay, well, I'll just summarize it. Um, see, this is what you pay for when you pay for this call, and you, you kind of just a ramshackle uh, presentation. Um, basically, my sense of somebody like Lorenzo, who actually met once and seemed pretty normal and well adjusted um and then i mean what seems to have happened in the interim i'm not sure um but i i almost think it's more illuminating to extend to somebody like her the benefit of, of the doubt in that just accept that she's sincere in her stated reasoning for why she thinks it's so morally urgent that she focused on her own experience of online harassment as this kind of cosmically uh, consequential issue. Um, I think she actually believes that, and that's why she, for example, agrees to appearances like this MSNBC interview where she breaks down in tears. And she even does this whole ritual, which I think is, which I think may originate from late night talk shows as a comedy routine. Uh, but Taylor Lorenz did it earnestly where she read aloud some of her most allegedly kind of gruesome, intimidating uh, mean tweets that she's acquired over the years, which you know entailed you know some not nice uh, slurs directed at her, which you know I don't support. However, I see you know at least from my end, I I, I incur similar stuff you know every two minutes roughly, or even more frequently. So it's that doesn't strike me as like a shocking thing, um, especially for somebody who voluntarily chooses to be a journalist and to comment on contentious subjects in the public domain. Um, I, 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 I take Taylor Lorenz's word for why she's doing this. Uh, I don't think that it's wholly cynical on her part or some kind of ruse um, that wouldn't really make much sense. I think it makes much more sense to uh, interpret what she's doing as a genuine expression of her bona fide ideological slash political slash journalistic commitments uh, and also recognize that the incentive structure within the contemporary media industry encourages people who have those commitments, like the ones that she evidently holds. Um, and then in view of that, what she can do is sort of kind of leverage her positioning to uh, garner more and more influence and prestige. And you know, in the years since I first wrote that article, those uh, sequence of articles – on Substack, on this issue, on the kind of this uh, popularization of uh, what I call therapeutic trauma jargon amongst uh, elite media operators, what's happened? Well, sure enough, um, Taylor Lorenz was poached 
in that she was kind of, at least as far as I could tell, I mean, I wasn't paying that close attention to this because there was actually a war happening that I thought was probably more important to devote my attentional resources to. But nonetheless, I did kind of hear peripherally that she had been poached or uh, cajoled to leave the New York Times and join the Washington Post as a, I don't know, some kind of tech columnist where she's basically doing what she's always done at different outlets. Um, but, you know, why would the Washington Post seek to kind of convince her to leave the New York Times and join the Washington Post? Well, she clearly still has some measure of cachet. I mean, she actually has a lot of cachet, more than 99.9% of the entire industry, uh, media industry. If uh, there's this whole courtship campaign uh, launched to, uh, to entice her to, to leave the New York Times. And if you're going to leave the New York Times, you probably should have a good reason to do so because it's, for better or worse, one of the most confer- uh, prestige-conferring institutions on the planet Earth. Um, and the Washington Post you know, launched this effort to, to get Taylor to switch sides or you know, jump, jump ship. Um, so uh, basically, you know, when I was writing about her and this whole mentality that she seems to exemplify around a year ago, I was, I thought it was most prudent to take her at her word, accept her and sincerity and recognize that this was actually a very, in a way, rational uh, method for journalists to accrue additional power and leverage and prestige within the industry. Now, given its warped incentives Um, and that Taylor Lorenz is still on this beat, you know, the beat of her own supposed harassment slash abuse and uh, chronicling it for MSNBC viewers is another uh, indication of that. And I think even though, you know, somebody maybe more of my uh, perspective on these things might look at the MSNBC interview where she's breaking down in tears and reading aloud mean tweets, might view it as kind of comical and ridiculous. Lots of the the, I would say the main the uh, main thrust of the media industry does not view it that way. They view it as ba- brave truth telling on her part, and they think that it's deserving of accolades. And I'm sure she'll probably receive additional awards and commendations for her um, for her noble sacrifices. Um, so uh, you know, in a way, you can't even begrudge her in the sense of you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. Well, the game is structured around. Encouraging bizarre behavior like encouraging bizarre behavior like this. Um, so that's my take on on Taylor Lorenz and kind of a interlude, kind of a or a digression based on my uh, largely single minded focus over the past uh, almost month and a half on the Ukraine stuff, um, which we can get into if people are interested or if they want to discuss that as well. Um, I guess just a couple quick points on that. Um, you know, I'm in, I'm in London now, uh, not for a strictly journalistic reason, but you know, while I'm here, I'm going to be doing some journalism as I do pretty much wherever I go. It's just kind of my, uh, <laughs> strange, uh, life. Um, and I, I can't help but notice that the media coverage of Ukraine seems in a way almost worse than it is in the U S and when I say worse, what do I mean? Well, I, not that it's more hysterical necessarily or more pro-war but there's like a certain incestuous quality about UK media that I think is not quite as prevalent in 
the U.S. meeting, that any article like in the Times, for example, or the Telegraph or something, particularly when the conservatives are in power because they're basically, you know, the, the Telegraph and the Times are kind of just the uh, pro, uh, often function as just repositories for whatever the conservative, you know, governing conservatives want to leak. Um, there's like a incestuous quality about it that actually also observed when I was here last um, in, in September. August of September of la- and September of last year during the Afghanistan withdrawal. During the Afghanistan withdrawal, you'll, you would have he- entire articles published in the Times, where it would be a, some sort of some anonymous defense minister or a defense official, uh, you know, presumably in government, complaining that, for example. Um, the Afghanistan withdrawal was – or the botched nature – the allegedly botched nature of the Afghanistan withdrawal was the final proof that it was time to reevaluate this so-called special relationship between the US and the UK. And basically they were alleging that the US had betrayed its commitments and left the UK in the lurch because they had so logistically failed in executing the Afghanistan withdrawal and – now, you know, for the first time in decades since the world, at least since World War II, uh, this should should occasion some sort of reevaluation of the foreign policy ties between the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and this was sort of like, okay, so this to you, meaning whoever this anonymous official was that was quoted dutifully in the Times, this to them is the most kind of damning foreign policy fiasco of the past. Seven decades, not Iraq, not Libya, not you know Vietnam, not any host of other uh, foreign policy actions that the U.S. has taken that with the U.K. as a subordinate partner. Um, only when you know there's finally an extrication from one of these twenty-plus year wars, that do you finally feel moved to whisper to your colleagues at the newspaper that you are so appalled that you think it's time for a fundamental rethink of this relationship. Now, I don't think that rethink has ever actually happened um, since Afghanistan, um, since the Afghanistan withdrawal last summer, at least there's no evidence that it has, but it's just kind of one indication of this bizarre. uh, There's actually more capriciousness in how anonymity is granted seemingly in these UK or media organs than there is in the U S. And you see a lot of that with green stuff at the moment, um, and I, there's also just total unanimity within the political class here and the media class as to the kind of premises undergirding the Ukraine war, uh, at least from the standpoint of what UK policy should be. Like the, um, to, it's it's like a mirror image of the US, where to the extent that there's any difference at all, it's uh, Boris Johnson kind of bragging that. If labor were in power, they wouldn't send Ukraine quite as much loads of weaponry, right? It's not as though there's any real philosophical difference about the wisdom or um, propriety of the weapons transfers. Uh, it's just a matter of like minor gradations in scale. Uh, that's the, the, supposedly the defining difference between labor and the uh, conservative party at the moment in terms of their take on Ukraine. Um, and you know you see uh, something very similar to that in, in the U.S. right now. Um, I, I think there's, um, I think in the U.S. there's kind of a bit of there's there's kind of a, a greater underlying just um, 
assignment of so-called seriousness to these to notions of military intervention that you don't see quite as much in the UK just because the UK doesn't have the capacity to launch the same kind of military operations that the US would. Um, so, you know, military expertise and authority in the US is kind of more outlandishly venerated than maybe the UK, but there are ways in which that the UK media and political climate is actually worse and more distorting, at least in my somewhat amateur judgment. Um, and, uh, uh, so that's – I think that probably this was most <laughs> egregiously represented uh, by a, the cover of the late, latest issue of uh, The Economist magazine, which is supposed, you know, supposedly this, this journal of kind of sober and restrained sort of world affairs commentary based – in London, obviously, from the standpoint of you know, promoting liberal democracy and capitalism as kind of the guiding ethos of – any responsible kind of civilization. That's what The Economist is all about, right? And their most recent issue uh, published uh, today, I remember the date is April 2nd, has uh, Zelensky in, a, of course, a dramatic kind of pose on the cover where he's looking kind of uh, intently at the camera in this photo and there's he's, the, the, his surroundings are darkened like he's kind of popping out of a cavern or something and 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 he's in need of the civilized world's assistance and the the headline caption is why ukraine must win now maybe to the naked eye that sounds innocuous like if you're just one of these average news consumers and your consumption of information related to the ukraine russia war is basically all centered on condemnation of russia for the invasion and basically this kind of uh, article of faith presupposition that of course the uk government or the us government or whatever government ought to be doing everything it possibly can to ensure that ukraine prevails against russia then you know nothing about this should seem or probably would seem at all unusual to you or surprising you know it's just another uh, addition to the whole kind of standard tenor of this uh, coverage for the past six weeks um, but from the but if you have a little bit more of a let's say uh, <laughs> informed understanding, you'll know that why Ukraine must win is kind of a declaration on the part of the of the Economist editorially because it's like an institutional endorsement on the uh, Economist part of this idea that really should be <laughs> consigned to the fringes, which is that Ukraine must fight to the last. Ukrainian, right? That that you know, fighting till, till the last Ukrainian is the only viable option. Um, you know, this is in the in the midst of you know these kind of recurring flurries of attention around so-called peace talks. Now, when I see the latest updates around peace talks, I, I kind of roll my eyes. Um, number one, because the U.S. is not a, apparently a diplomat, a uh, negotiating partner, and you know, Putin has been very explicit that. As essentially, he regards this conflict as you know, ultimately against the U.S., um, given the U.S. using Ukraine as this outpost for its own military expansionism, given its quest to enhance so-called interoperability between NATO, the U.S., and the Ukraine military, and on and on and on. I mean, we can, we've been over this. Um, and so there, there's a bit of a farcical element to a lot of these so-called peace talks uh, given that the u.s seems 
very much committed to there not being any real sustainable negotiated resolution. Um, hence, these continued deployments of lethal weaponry into Ukraine. And I'm sorry, I, I know I discussed this on the previous call-in, but if on the one hand you're saying that it's great for the U.S. to dump giant amounts of grenade launchers and stinger missiles and even potentially fighter jets into Ukraine, I don't really have much confidence in the sincerity of your pretensions to be like a good faith promoter of, quote, peace talks. Um, anyway, so this is all happening. These peace supposed peace talks are happening in the midst of the Western media. I mean, the most supposedly the most responsible, democracy-loving, pro-liberalism media outlets, best kind of uh, uh, emblematized by The Economist. They're basically declaring that they're institutionally <laughs> endorsing the uh, prolonged, perpetual prolongation of the war. That's what you're saying if you're saying why Ukraine must win. Well, what does it mean to win, have a battlefield victory? Um, in which, if, if that's the case, then why are you pretending to support any kind of negotiated resolution via quote-unquote peace talk? You're saying that Russia must be defeated in the battlefield, and that's why you're sending out these, uh, these weapons, and that's why you know, you're so zealously in favor of the sanctions that have been inflicted on Russia and you want actually more sanctions or more severe sanctions because you want to collapse the Russian economy and facilitate regime change. I mean, we've been over this. I know maybe I'm repeating myself. Um, but you know, we, there's just more and more evidence all the time that this is actually the genuine posture of, uh, especially the U S uh, and the UK and, um, you know, reading the financial times, another British paper uh, a few days ago, there was a report saying that the you know, so-called Western capitals, in particular London, you know, and uh, DC, and may, you know, maybe some some elements within the European Union, they're not willing. They're avowedly against, opposed to this idea of tying sanctions relief, meaning removal of sanctions that have so far been placed on Russia, tying it to any cessation of military hostilities by Russia and Ukraine. So they're saying that even if Russia does. You know, let's say tomorrow they stop the invasion with raw troops. That's not sufficient for these sanctions to be removed. Um, they're going to keep them on in perpetuity because what are they doing? I mean, well, Biden was explicit about it a week ago. He said that he wants Putin out, and he is uh, basically just admitting what everybody should be able should have been able to infer. Uh, which is that U.S. policy and, by extension, U.K. Uh, policy and even uh, large segments of the European Union's policy is all oriented now around engineering regime change in Russia. Um, so if that's the goal, why would they remove sanctions um, uh, as like a kind of quid pro quo or not a quid pro quo, but a trade-off for Russia, you know, ending hostilities? So Russia has no incentive from a sanctions standpoint to end hostilities. And that's just, again, reflected by this war cry uh, in the form of the economist's latest cover. And so I think people should be clear-eyed um, about what the ultimate objective is for these kind of sources of Western authority. I mean, they're, they're all they're, – they're invested in the war completely. Um, they, there has been no traction – from the U.S. at all uh, in terms of their uh, facilitation of so-called peace talks. They have actually sought to undermine them. Um, there was an article uh, uh, last week 
reporting that Blinken, the Secretary of State, hadn't even attempted to make contact with his counterpart Lavrov in, in Russia. Um, so this is all, I think a lot of the so-called peace stuff, talk stuff, you know, I don't 100% discount it, but it seems farcical insofar as the U.S. is doing everything it can uh, in conjunction with the U.K. and some others to uh, undermine the kind of logic be, uh, behind peace talks or the logic that would need to be kind of accepted in order for any kind of peace, peace talk to actually be uh, implemented. Um, and so, yeah, that's the uh, the basic uh, thrust of my latest, I guess, Ukraine sort of take. And you know, anybody, if you have a thought on either the uh, traumatized uh, journalist stuff or the uh, latest Ukraine developments, you know, Feel free to muse with me on this casual Saturday afternoon edition of Colin or whatever else you want to bring up is fine as well. Okay, so let's go to uh, keep warm something or other. You're up, sir or ma'am. Keep warm, burn the rich. Are you there? Uh, you have to unmute, and by doing that, you press the little microphone icon at the bottom right, just in case you are new to Colin. If not, then going to go to Sue's, and you can rejoin the queue when you're able to figure out the system here on Colin. All right, Sue's, you are up. Hello again. Suze, can you hear me? Hmm. Suze, Suze, Suze. Suze, Suze, Studio. Phil Collins. Uh, I can't hear you at the moment, Suze. Maybe there's something screwed up on my phone. I don't think so. Um, but you're not lighting up as Colin does when somebody's speaking. Um, okay, so... Suze, you can also rejoin uh, if you figure out the problem. Um, let's go to Nasser, and hopefully I can hear him because I know I've done that. Hello. There we go. Okay, so I'm not going crazy, and I no, can't no. the callers. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, actually, I was uh, – so you touched so many topics that just kind of like uh, I don't know where to start, but I have two – I want to touch sometimes it's the Sometimes the breadth of my knowledge can be overwhelming. So I understand. <laughs> no, and also maybe because there are a lot of uh, issues going on in the world. So, <laughs> so I thought it's a Taylor Lawrence actually. I, I, I just, just whenever I see, I mean, headlines or news like this one, I just remind me uh, Palia, you know, Camille Palia. Camille yeah. Palia once said that you know he. he she said that these girls, these upper middle class, upper class girls, they want the whole society, the whole society, to be their living room. Like, like they can just, and, and it's not possible, you know. <laughs> yeah. And it's not possible, and uh, so I think it just reminds me that I don't know. And then a second about the British policy toward. Uh, Ukraine right now. Mm -hmm. uh, yesterday, um, uh, the Kremlin spokesperson, uh, Peskov, he mm -hmm. said that uh, we don't really understand why the British is so anti-Russian, even in the, even in Washington. Like he, he said, the things that come out of yeah. London 
is so aggressive and belligerent that even like uh, Washington doesn't say those things. So I think you're right about this. I don't know about the Brits. I mean, I really I haven't lived. I mean, I didn't live there. I don't know them much, but it's, I think it's maybe kind of nostalgia or maybe a lack of self-awareness that they're not as important as they think. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny because there was a certain way why I bring up the Afghanistan withdrawal, which I know you follow much more closely and have more of a kind of had more kind of a personal uh, stake in. But you know, I was here in 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 London during the Afghanistan withdrawal last summer, and there, there was a way in which the British media was actually even crazier than the U.S. media. I mean, sort of crazy in a different way, in that they were just kind of squealing in anguish, um, and ha- were leveling these kind of furious denunciations of Biden as though he was the president of the UK, not the US. I mean, it's like he had personally betrayed the British in his execution of the Afghanistan withdrawal. And so there was a certain degree, uh, way in which it was like an, ex- seemed to be me to be like an expression of their impotence. Like they're, they can't actually live out these, fantasies of so-called global global britain where there's a, this is what like theresa may invoked as the supposedly guiding principle of british foreign policy just which is basically a projection of british power the world over they know they can't really do this at least um if they're not just a prong of the u.s and so they sort of relive some of these past delusions by way of like very inflamed rhetoric that aren't actually connected to anything in terms of real uh, action. Um, so I think there's some weird psychological undercurrent there that maybe I don't have a full uh, grasp on that makes it almost a bit more unhinged even in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is definitely unhinged, and maybe it's just unhinged in a slightly different direction. Um, but but yeah, I, mean, I think it's a, it's a similar thing here where like the like you know the the the, the UK political class um, and the media commentators can fulminate all they want about what the what it will take to get the job done in Ukraine, but ultimately they don't have any power really over getting the job done in Ukraine militarily. That would come down to the U.S. Um, if anything, they could only really hope to play a supporting role. Uh, so you know, may, maybe because there's less on the line for them, they therefore have more space to just scream wildly and act even crazier in certain respects than people in the u.s might because in the u.s i mean we do i mean biden tomorrow could decide to launch world war three um uh, on his own whim uh, and that's just really not and he wouldn't have to consult anyone whereas you know uh the uk you know it was once the leading global power but no longer op- obviously occupies that role and therefore you know has to kind of relegate itself to just lashing out during these crises as sort of a um uh, like a nostalgic resurrection of its past uh, glory. You know, maybe I'm missing something and uh, maybe others could provide a better explanation than me, but that's at least my kind of uh, nutshell uh, understanding of what explains some of this. And in terms of your tale of the rinse point, yeah, I mean, I mean, the paleo, the Paglia's uh, diagnosis is one of is something that I would obviously uh, put some stock in. Um, but, you know, I also, you know, one reason I kind of wanted to emphasize that I actually take, Taylor Lorenz at her word is that, you know, I think when she, when she pulled herself out as this, you know, victim of some sort, um, she's not just doing it from a self-aggrandizing standpoint, at least she's not consciously just saying to herself, look, I mean, 
I want the whole world to be my living room, right? She actually thinks she has a principal reason for doing it and that she's speaking on behalf of victims, uh, uh, other victims who have less of a voice than she does. And therefore, she's doing something noble and necessary. I think that's actually – I think recognizing that is actually necessary to understand why she's coming from and why she continues on this beat. So. I think – I think, yeah, I think uh, – I, I, so, so, I mean, I, I, in my opinion, she really – she believes in it. It's not yeah. like something like out of political expediency, in my opinion. She really right. believes that, you know. So, so and I yeah. think coming to – Polly also saying the same thing. She doesn't say that they're doing it out of like political expediency. They, are, but they really that that class really leads, you know, because it's, it's it's because it's an educated class, you know. They they go to these Ivy League schools, so they have like that kind of perspective. So they really, I mean, they believe in it, and it's also kind of like indoctrination. You know, you go to these schools, you really believe, you know, you just internalize these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, maybe I'll have to bring Camille Paglia on Colin for her latest take on. Yeah, that would be awesome. Taylor awesome. Lorenz saga. <laughs> All right, thanks, Nasser. <laughs> That'd uh, be awesome. <laughs> yeah, and also I would, I would just. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, thought you had completed. Well, we could talk again soon. Suze, uh, hopefully, can hear you this time. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry about that. I didn't realize that you couldn't hear me and that I couldn't hear you. Obviously. All right. Well, I can hear you now. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so I guess I really agree what both you and Nasser were both saying about Taylor Lorenz, and it's just kind of emblematic of such this like sinister like narrative these days regarding women and this trauma narrative that like we have no choice but to be victims. Like that, you know, all these, you know, I see the amount of harassment you get on Twitter. Like I see the terrible things that everyone gets online. And I've never seen similar things for most female journalists that complain about it. But we're just supposed to think that because we're women, it's supposed to hurt us so much. And it's supposed to be, like, so dangerous to us and something that causes us to, like, fear for our safety. If it's Even if it's just words or, like, you know, the, the, the effects of just being, having a very, you know, elite job of a journalist in the New York Times. Um it just like ends up harming women when they're claiming that they're doing it to, you know, they're claiming that this is protecting women and it's the fault of men. Like, no, we don't have to just be upset by these things that are just made up. Um, yeah. You I know, I think there are a couple of, I think there are a couple of things worth separating out. Right. I think for the ordinary, I mean, for, I think the, the, the problem of, women and men and girls and, and boys being on the receiving end of really vitriolic and egregious and even graphic online uh, ridicule um, could be a problem. It can be a problem that is real for just ordinary people. Like I don't begrudge anyone from, you know, not wanting, for example, their like 17 year old daughter to um, get some of this, mo- like uh, really crude, you know, online uh, messages from you know creepy guys who are commenting on their body type or whatever, you know, this is this stuff actually does happen and is real. So that's I, I don't discount the so-called harm caused by online harassment in every context. I think this, though, on Taylor Lorenz's part, is totally different. I mean, this is a professional journalist, right? This is somebody who chose willingly to enter into the public fray 
to comment on contentious political and cultural topics and to do so under the institutional auspices of some of the most prominent publications, not just in the U.S., but the world. I mean, she was with uh, at the Atlantic, then with the New York Times, now at the Washington Post. So she's not this kind of marginal figure, right? And she has a huge amount of power, um, particularly when she was at the New York Times, where, you know, it, 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 I mean, people don't understand – if you're if you're a New York Times journalist, your calls are always going to get returned because you can instill fear in the hearts of pretty much anybody that you could basically destroy them. And you know, people have pointed out instances where she may have allegedly done something along those lines. I'm not that familiar with everything that she's done journalistically, and that's sort of not even the issue. The issue is that conflating her experience as a 37 year old or whatever adult who is in the field of journalism by her own volition with anybody else online who might be subject to, you know, kind of repugnant online abuse or vitriol, that's a conflation that I think has to be challenged. Um, Yeah. Like I definitely, definitely don't, I mean, it's a completely different situation, especially if it's like a young woman who's not putting herself out there, but for like women that are professionals, um, it's so infantilizing as if, we just are supposed to be babied and and not not ever criticized. Uh, yeah, and you know, like <laughs> it's funny because you know, if I really wanted to, I could so I could in two seconds come up with the same routine that she has about these vitriolic messages that I receive that are you could even say they're gender based because like I mean, people make the most ridiculous comments about me and you know every aspect of my personal life and my appearance and on and on and on and like. If I wanted to, I could spin a narrative out of that saying that this is like gender-based harassment or something and, you know, cover nothing else. Like forget about Ukraine, forget about uh, COVID, uh, forget about any other relevant topic and just cover what I personally receive in my email inbox or DM folder. And I could occupy my time with that, Um, but I don't do it because that would seem to be a little bit ridiculous and kind of self-aggrandizing and reflective of distorted priorities. And yet when somebody like she does it, you know, it's uh, valorized and she gets backed by these NGOs. She's, um, you know, uh, supported by her colleagues and the peers in the industry to the hilt. And this is seen as a normal thing and actually a a, uh, noble thing for her to do. And I think that's just going to continue and she's going to continue to wield lots of influence, notwithstanding how seemingly silly she might look to some of the rest of us. Um, yeah. And so. the idea that like, you know, she's like on TV crying. I mean, like, like you said, maybe it's genuine. Maybe she just truly does feel that way. And you know, that I think the, the also the woman that you wrote that article about a while ago, that this is yeah. what they're saying. is so Felicia. To them. Yeah. Let, yet they're still on Twitter. Like yeah. you really don't need to be on Twitter, and if you're <laughs> needing to seek psychiatric help, I would think that one of the first things you would be told was to perhaps log off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you also don't need to be a pundit. I mean, you, you also don't need to be a journalist. I mean, there are plenty of opportunities that could be available to you that wouldn't entail or wouldn't require as like a part of your job incurring this kind of commentary on the internet, and yet they choose to do it anyway and then they kind of craft this whole sort of uh self-affirming narrative for themselves whereby their receipt of this commentary the comments you know uh online abuse so-called that then justifies their continued 
work in the field. I mean, it's like a it's like a circular reasoning that they use they use because um, obviously you know anybody once you reach a certain level of following or notoriety, um, whether you're a man, woman, black, white, blue, red, you know whatever, you're gonna get a whole lot of nasty comments. I mean, it's just like an inevitable feature of the internet, uh, and yet certain people opportunistically fashion a kind of quasi-journalistic beat around the receipt of those comments. And, uh, you know, I don't think it reflects particularly well on them or their priorities, but there's a there's an appetite for it uh, and a tolerance of it within the elite media industry that I don't think is going away anytime soon. I think some of the old guard might roll their eyes at it. Um, you saw this when actually... Uh, I think Project uh, Veritas uh, put out um, like uh, you know another one of their surreptitiously recorded um, f- uh, videos. Of, you know, and I, I'm not 100 percent sold on the ethical propriety of this, but nonetheless, they put it out. Of I think it was Matt Rosenberg, who's the New York Times reporter. I, mean, I might have the name wrong, but the, the New York Times reporter who had covered some of the January 6th stuff, and he goes on video, sort of ridiculing how his oh, younger yeah. colleagues. Um, at the New York Times were kind of going on and on and on about how supposedly traumatized they were by the events of January 6th, right? And so clearly there, there's a there's a uh, there's an element of the media industry that's maybe slightly older that doesn't buy into a lot of this stuff, but they're just totally quiet about it. I mean, they're not going to, I mean, I, that guy at the New York Times never would have said anything like that in public um, because, you know, he doesn't want to jeopardize his uh, standing in, within the, this institution that, as I said, still, whatever its problems, confers a ton of prestige, gets your calls returned, and, uh, you know, gets you book deals and speaking gigs and all that. Um, so there's a whole economic incentive, incentive for him to stifle his genuine views about this flourishing of the kind of therapeutic, trauma jargon that his younger colleagues are so fixated on. Um, so yeah, that's basically my thought. All right. Yeah, uh, thanks. Totally Suze. Have a good one. Yep. You too. Going to go to uh, Jeff. You are up, sir or ma'am. I guess you could be a woman. Yeah, no, no, man. Hey, Michael, uh, what do you think the end game to this is for the U.S.? I mean, I grew up on the right. I'm still probably right of center, but I see zero, and I mean zero, interest in doing anything other than supplying maybe munitions. Um, I don't see any energy from that whatsoever. So what's the end game here for the U.S.? Well, I mean, I think the end game – I don't know that there's a clearly defined end game so much as what what the ideal trajectory is. And I think this is this was made clear by I've mentioned this before, but there was a Bloomberg column by Neil Ferguson maybe ten days ago or so now that spells it all out. Um, this is based on what a Biden administration official was overheard at some private function saying, which is that the whole the whole idea here now is that the U.S.'s intent on achieving regime change in Russia, and they're going to try to do that, you know, maybe over the mid to long term by so called bleeding Russia dry, both on the battlefield um, and economically. And so you know, just yesterday, there was a new tranche of uh, weapons announced by Biden that he's going to be sending to, you know, and it wasn't April Fool's joke, unfortunately. Um, but there was a new batch of weapons that the, Biden, the Pentagon announced that it was going to be sending to Ukraine. And, you know, I guess maybe for the average um, Joe, it, it, it could be a slightly uh, eye-popping number. I mean, this is an amount of money that 
none of them are ever going to have access to in their lives, $300 million in additional so-called security assistance to Ukraine. That sounds like a lot, but really, I mean, in terms of the defense, Department of Defense's like procurement process, it's not that much. I mean, these are multi, multi, multi-trillion dollar uh, expenditures that the Pentagon uh, is involved with when over, you know, the span of years. So, um, 300 million, it might seem like a lot and it can get a, a fair a number of stinger missiles and whatever, but you know, it's not probably not going to be enough to like actually enable battlefield victory on the part of Ukraine, but what, what could it do? Well, it could just prolong the war. Right. Um, and I think, you know, there's a, a number of, of motivations for why the U S and other countries, uh, including the UK would want the war prolonged because this is a, Stimulus package for their defense sectors. And, you know, I think at some time, at times there can be a tendency on the part of maybe some critics to overstate like their direct causality between the profit motive of the military industrial complex and various actions abroad. Um, and because it's often weaved with that, that motive is often weaved in with different ideological conceits. But, you know, that at the same time within the, kind of mainstream commentariat or political class, there is a gigantic uh, gap in its willingness to entertain the plausibility of a profit motive in driving a lot of this. Because I'm sorry, Raytheon loves, I mean, look at what they're putting out in their investor calls right now. Go to seekingalpha.com, which I look at periodically and get updates from the, uh, about like the, the prospectuses for these giant defense firms. Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, et cetera, General Dynamics. I mean, they're all falling over themselves with glee, not only because the U.S. is in a position to continue funding this war effort, and therefore that's a huge, that's more and more expenditures uh, domestically, but because you know the the European countries, even including like Finland and Sweden, and are uh, dramatically boosting their defense spending. And where are they going to go to for like the optimal? Equipment. It's going to be these U.S. firms by way of NATO. Um, uh, you know, and it, it could even be that more markets will open up if, like, a Sweden and Finland choose to join NATO. I mean, everybody's cheering for some reason the remilitarization of Germany, for God's sake, which is kind of a bizarre uh, concept, um, but one that's apparently now totally in the mainstream. So when you talk about an endgame, I don't know that they have like a specifically delineated endgame as much as they know what they want, which is they don't want. Uh, the, 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 there's not any effort, so far as I can see, to, uh, being deployed toward an, an actual diplomatic resolution, which would presumably have to entail some si- kind of extraction of concessions from both Zelensky and Putin, so nobody would be fully happy, right? Um, and even the U.S., I think, would also have to ish- make some concessions. Uh, like, I, I don't get it. I mean, the, the, the people think that there's going to be some kind of peace deal, long-term peace deal broker between the, just Ukraine and Russia without the U.S. having any involvement and with the U.S. kind of maintaining its insistence on staging NATO exercises in Ukraine and for eventually bringing, potentially even bringing in uh, Ukraine to NATO. They think that's going to fly in the long run? No, of course it's not. The U.S. would also have to be party to these negotiations in a way and be willing to make concessions. I don't see any willingness whatsoever to make those concessions because that would be the tantamount to making concessions to Hitler according to the dominant narrative. Uh, so Joe Biden would be Neville Chamberlain. I mean, I get to call Neville Chamberlain myself, and I'm not even president. I'm a guy with a substack. stack um, So I, I think uh, they 
they don't have a fully thought through vision of what the supposed end game is. They just know that it's in their kind of short term ideological and yes, profit motivated interest to just continue this current uh, status quo and um, everybody benefits except that you actual Ukrainians who are bearing the brunt of the violence while, you know, magazine editors and uh, weapons contractors in and former defensive quote unquote officials in London and in Washington DC, you know, uh, preen for, uh, for how idea, uh, you know, dedicated they are to the triumph of Ukraine. Um, so, I mean, that's where I, where I see it going. Um, if that makes any sense. Jeez, that's not good news. One last question. What do you think as we get closer to November and, uh, you know, whether it's a red wave or red tsunami, do you think that shifts? Because I, again, I don't see other than the neocons and I think they are, they're out and onto themselves. I don't see anybody on the right really, cheerleading this thing on and 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 more likely want to see some kind of a negotiated peace with Putin left in place. Well, I, mean, I, I disagree with you. I mean, I think there are, t- I mean, I think who? tons, well, I mean, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Marco no, Rubio, okay. all the top, all the top figures yeah. in the Republican Party. Right. I mean, there's a, a tiny sliver, like at your Thomas Massey types who object to this. Uh, but it was like, you know, in terms of the most recent package and so-called security assistance, Sorry. In terms of the most recent sanctions and quote unquote security assistance package that was passed in the House maybe two weeks ago, I think it was something like only eight or nine Republicans voted against it out of 200 something. Um, And almost the entire Republican caucus in the Senate was united behind this idea of condemning Biden for so-called appeasement because he didn't endorse this uh, plan to transfer MiG jets from Poland into Ukrainian airspace and potentially trigger some kind of direct military confrontation with Russia. And guess who signed on to that letter? Hawley, Cruz, Rubio, supposedly these guys who are like, you know, bucking conventional wisdom within the party, but really aren't. I mean, they're just repackaged progenitors of conventional wisdom in my view so i mean it's not just i mean i think it's a misnomer to say that it's just the neocons like it's just crazy lindsey graham behind this stuff no i mean to the extent that the republican party is i'm actually going to write about this for tomorrow hopefully so i'll spell it out in greater detail but to the extent that the republicans have any criticism bud right now it's that he's not aggressive enough so you know i, I think um yeah no they're they, they are they, they're they're fully behind this and they're not doing anything whatsoever to suggest that they want any kind of negotiated resolution as far as i can tell i mean correct me if i'm wrong except for a, a, a tiny handful of of figures who okay, don't so really like, have yeah, that much me, di- much in, influence on the overall priorities of the party let me restate then uh, the people of the party uh the humans and the people that are going to okay. go fight this damn war um i don't see you know uh podcasters i mean there's a bunch of uh you know former military podcasters out there that are screaming at the top of their lungs this is insane don't do this um so i don't see the cheerleading i guess from the the, you know whatever the the people are going to actually do the fighting and dying and and all this mess well i mean you say say that but when you but you you say that when but when you look at even polls like two weeks ago there was a poll i get i forget by which firm but asked um, respondents about a no-fly zone, right? And uh, it was a majority supported it, and it was roughly equal support amongst Republicans and Democrats. Even now, at times, Republicans are outpacing Democrats in their support for additionally belligerent measures. I think in part because they think that, you know, it's a function of this whole knee-jerk partisan thing where they're saying Biden's weak, right? So Biden is too afraid and weak need to do what's necessary to really 
take it to Putin and that's kind of informing why they would respond to a survey question in that way. But, you know, I think even if you forget the elected officials, I mean, I think there's, um, you know, there, and there's been a huge shift in um, conservative media, uh, you know, with the exception of Tucker on Fox, uh, you know, most of the rest of Fox is gung ho about this. Um, and I think it's reflected in the sentiments of the, uh, of the average Republican voter, at least if you look at the polling data, where um, now they even they match or surpass Democrats in their animus toward Russia. So oh, I think great. it's Man, I, I think it's I think it's <laughs> well, yeah, because I think you know it's it's wishful thinking on the part of uh, you know the types of right leaning guys who follow me that somehow you know there's a bastion of sanity within the Republican Party at, at, at this time. You know, it's a, it's so tiny to almost be inconsequential. I would say, unfortunately, oh, I, mean, I would like if it All were right. not the case. Well, have a good one, man. Keep up the good work. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Let's go to uh, Peter. You are up. Thank you, Michael. Can you hear me yep. okay? Yep. Great. Yeah, I find out that I can actually do some bicycle, uh, biking while listening to the coin. Uh, oh, so you don't, you don't have, to just have to just sit stationary on your ass. You can actually burn some hey, calories. I, yeah, I, should take, I, should, I should really take, uh, take heart what you're saying and, and implement something similar to myself rather than just kind of sitting around lazily you know, ranting oh, into the phone. <laughs> yeah. yeah for, the, all the, for all the bad news in the world, you need to go out and do exercise. So just so, you know, so you're not being brought down by those bad news, right? Maybe I'll, um, maybe I'll like um, hang glide or something next time while I do my <laughs> call. Appreciate you having this show because uh, uh, first of all, to the title of this particular episode, uh, I just think uh, it's uh, another self uh, promotion for this uh, female journalist doing this. Uh, you know, being an online or offline journalist, you take the risk that comes with the job, right? And uh, so I don't want to, you know, comment whether because she's a female or male, a young or old, that she was traumatized or he was traumatized and all that. Uh, I, I actually felt that. Uh, the mainstream media today reflect the a tradition of American journalism actually has been very passive when it comes to war and peace. Because, uh, you know, mainstream media will tell you uh, people like uh, Neil Sheen and uh, David Halberstam are considered to be like the leader of the anti-war uh, movement. When, when in fact, uh, all those uh, journalists during the Vietnam War has the consistently promote the war and uh, to the very end. And that they are not really the, 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 uh, the what I should say, they are not the peace-loving people. They are just, you know, they are just doing their business, uh, basically, go to the war zone and report what the government's telling them. So that's first thing. So it's because we should not expect too much out of the mainstream media. Uh, journalism, basically. This is the one thing I want to say. Uh, yeah. And uh, the only one person which I find out to be astonishing is that actually seriously challenge a U.S. war is Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I don't know whether the listeners and you have ever heard of this uh, thing called the Spot Resolution. Uh, it's a resolution proposed by Abraham Lincoln when he was a congressman asking the president, the commander-in-chief, to show the spot where the Mexican has invaded the, the United States. That's the only one, uh, only once in the United States history that a person of, in power, being in journalist or in the Congress, question why we have to get involved in the foreign war. 
And uh, yeah, so- well, I'm not I'm not sure about that, but I do. I, I have actually looked recently into the Mexican American War, which is very much under uh, acknowledged in U.S. history, um, it, because there's this constant refrain today that you know Putin is the only person, the only world leader since Hitler to uh, have invaded a sovereign neighbor for ter- for reasons of territorial conquest. And um, I'm, I know it was like quite a while ago, but actually so was World War II. So I don't understand why this has to be forgotten. Um, there's a guy uh, named James K. Polk who was the president of the United States who did the exact same thing and basically fabricated a pretext to invade Mexico and seize – uh, much of what is uh, present day uh, Texas and uh, New Mexico, right? Uh, and yeah. California as well, I think. And, you know, so it's just like you don't automatically have to go to the Hitler analogy every single time to explain what Putin is doing when there are other analogies potentially available. And yet, you know, they go with the, the uh, Hitler analogy because I think it's the only one that they ever learn. And also, there's a lot of Facebook memes about it, and it kind of gives them a sense of moral aggrandizement to be screaming constantly about Hitler and how everyone who disagrees with the sort of orthodoxies of current U.S. policy must be this despicable appeaser who will be okay with another Holocaust or whatever. Um, yeah. 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 So now comes yeah. my question. Uh, this is a question for you and for actually for a special guest. I think uh, his name is Serge. I'm glad Serge is on because he is actually a Ukrainian. I hope he's still on. Uh, based on uh, you know, whether you're pro-Putin or pro-Ukraine, uh, I don't know, you know, what your uh, leanings, uh, inclination is, Michael, uh, including the listeners. I'm there. against both. <laughs> you get both. Okay. So I would uh, pose this question to everyone, including you, Michael, is that give a specific number. How many years this Russia-Ukraine war or Ukraine-Russia war is going to last? Like, uh, just to think about You are a journalist. You are in Saigon in the 1963. Okay. You're talking about the U.S. mission in, in Vietnam. I'm pretty sure those... Uh, famous journalists, uh, you know, Neil Sheen, uh, David Hapistan, anyone else, they, you know, when they're sitting in a nice cafe, they must be, they must be doing some little bet. They, hey, how long is this going to mm-hmm. last? Five more years? Uh, let's all have, have that experience right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, I try to, I, I, well, I mean, thank you for the, the challenge, but I do kind of try to resist the temptation to just offer up totally speculative prognostications about stuff in the future, which oftentimes I think for journalists comes back to bite them because they're not what they're doing isn't like fundamentally journalistic in a way. It's just speculative. Um, I, I, what I, how I would respond to that is just to note what U.S. policy is oriented toward right now, and I just kind of you know rehearsed this earlier. But I mean, well, you know to what, the I, extent I, that you can I, make any extrapolations about what U.S. policymakers no, want actually, right now, including the Biden administration, you, what they want is a prolonged war that could very well last years. Um, so well, I, I, I see no I'll, reason I'll, I'll, to, to doubt their their um, their dedication to that. So I'm not going to give that, you a firm that, number of da- of years necessarily, or give you a date when like a peace treaty is going to be declared or something. But you know, I think uh, you know b- based on what me, U.S. policy is geared toward, there's any every reason to believe it's going to be a prolonged conflict where, where you know a lot of vested U.S. interests stand to make a lot of money and to you know tr- flatter their ideological preconceptions. Actually, you are thinking that you just expressed actually is the exact reason why the Iraq war is still ongoing, why the Afghanistan war is, takes 20 years, and the, why the Vietnam war, especially the U.S. involvement, lasted uh, from uh, 1947 
to 1975 because uh, we, the decision makers, never will tell the public why we are there, how long it's going to last, what's our goal. They never do that. Yeah. And our yeah. journalists, you know, be the, being online, offline, uh, mainstream, or, 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 or fringe, uh, they all in the same thinking. They will never ask the question, why we are there? How are we going to achieve? What's our goal? How are we going to achieve it? And how long it will take? They will just, yeah. just go with the flow because this is what the military industrial complex loved the most. Well, you know, I, th- I think, I think, you know, I think at least from my standpoint, the best way that I can go about doing just that, like what you articulate in terms of the skepticism that ought to be raised is to point out that the kind of underlying premises behind U.S. policy right now in Ukraine are not being questioned at all. In fact, they're being bolstered by this convergence of kind of uh, cross-ideological consensus. So to kind of probe and prick at that consensus maybe serves the purpose that you're you're suggesting. But anyway, thank you, Peter. Going to go now to uh, Scarlett. You are up next. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Awesome. So I just wanted to real quick, Michael, say, like, I'm really surprised that you're trying to normalize the terrible behavior. I don't agree that 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 Taylor is being victimized, but maybe a kinder Internet <laughs> would be a better world for all of us. Because I got to say, if someone were standing in front of me in real life and said, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to rape you, your ugliest sin, I, I got to say, like, there would be consequences in a way that there isn't across keyboards. So maybe. Sure. Just a kinder world would be better. And I got to say, in my case, you'd get a lot of surprises because uh, I'm a stay-at-home mom, but I'm a little more than you'd expect in terms of some skills. Uh, so, but no <laughs> well, wait, 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 hold on. Hold on. Let, me just, let me just interject real quick. When you say I'm normalizing it, I mean, I don't think I said anything remotely uh, in defense of that kind of vitriolic statement that I'm sure Taylor does receive. And I also receive many variations of that. And I, I won't... I won't um, <laughs> subject you to the uh, examples. So, I mean, I'm not defending that at all. I, what I, my criticism was more in her deliberate cre- um, fashioning of a certain sort of self-affirming narrative out of it and this notion that she's somehow unique or that she's like a uniquely moving kind of representation of this new social problem around online harassment. I don't agree. Yeah. I'm, 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 I wouldn't send those messages and I receive them enough of them myself to know that they're not pleasant. Uh, but that's a separate that's, point that's from right? that's a separate, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, that's a separate point from like what, what is like the defensible journalistic reaction to them. I don't think it really is to like craft this self-directed, uh, first person like uh, narrative where your Twitter mentions and your email inbox are somehow this uh, giant social uh, problem of massive importance everybody has to concern themselves with. But I think it's it's really important that as you have these discussions that it be, be really clear that this behavior is abhorrent and unacceptable in anyone and threatening physical violence over words. I think Will Smith would agree today is probably not a good idea. Uh, but you know, just, just make really sure that what we're saying is like, you guys got to quit being such just ridiculous jerks and women on the internet. And I think if you just scroll down through this room and obviously my name's not Scarlett, the number of people who, especially women who are not using their own photos, I think speaks a lot to how, how it is to kind of, to try to be a woman and to be authentic, but God forbid you put your photo because you're not 
my goodness, even the most beautiful, perfect women in the world get criticism about how they look and how they have. Yeah, and I don't, I don't deny that. I don't even deny that the, these appearance-based attacks are more pronounced for women. At the same time, and I don't want to make this like a kind of a reductive, you know, male versus female who has it worse type debate, which seems oh, very no, trite not. and not unproductive to me. But like, I mean, I, my, my appear, my physical appearance, I mean, I, I don't purport to be a fashion model or anything, you know, but my physical appearance gets it's ridiculed all day, every day by people who just want to get a rise out of me. And I think it would, it's not pleasant. And I think it's probably not, it's not nice, but I also think it would be ridiculous if I were to then try to construct this kind of holistic narrative about the harms of online harassment on the basis of that. I think it would be egotistical on my part and uh, myopic, so I don't do it. And yet, well, if a Taylor Lorenz does it, it's okay because they can purport there to be some sort of gender-based uh, bias associated with it, which, I get, which I'm sure there is. Uh, but it, the thing is, when you have, enough, when you have a large enough uh, platform, you're going to get that stuff Male, female, black, white, whatever, one-legged, two-legged, doesn't matter. That's just inevitable. I don't know how old you are, but I'm old enough that Fucked Company was one of my favorite websites back in the day. So I've been on the internet a long time. I'm not, you know, a fainting flower. And But I, it was so different. The personal attacks and the consequences of them have gotten so much worse in the last, I'd say, eight years. That it used to, the, the internet used to be about connecting and finding your tribe of weirdos and it used to be a playground and now it's a battleground. So if she's 37, when she got into this business, I don't think she expected it. And it could also be, and you're playing right into it, if so, that the discussions about her only increase her fame for whatever reason and no such thing as bad press is probably something a journalist would know. So if if your objection is that she's you know, doing this for a publicity play, then you're actually playing right into it. And I had a job where I had, I, I actually did social media for a government. And I never, when I started it, loved it. It was amazing. And over the course of that, got all kinds of threats of violence to include death. Um, and it was extremely difficult <laughs> to put up with that. And I did not sign up for that. And the world that I signed up for was... Um, Scarlett, unfortunately, you, uh, you dropped out. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, the world was just so different when she started the, the, that career. So I would push back on saying like, that this is an inherent feature of the internet because this is a new bug, not a feature. <laughs> well, I mean, it's an inherent feature of, okay. I mean, I take it that maybe it was slightly different in the past. Although I, I, <laughs> I recall some pretty heated, uh, trolling on message boards of old. So I'm not sure how <laughs> new it is. Maybe just the intensity nature. of it is, is different. And yeah. obviously, and you know, the social, social media being so thoroughly integrated into how journalism is done today. Sure. Uh, emphasizes or amplifies it more, uh, amplifies it more than maybe in the past. But I don't, I don't, I wouldn't overstate the novelty of it today. I mean, I think um, what's what really is what really is novel is how uh, journalists can make it their beat. Meaning, not even the issue of online harassment per se, but but the online harassment they personally receive, and then it becomes this like self justifying kind of perpetual cycle of uh, where they can report on something, and then if people object to it that they can report on that too and yeah it does heighten their their notoriety and influence that's why i think there's actually some measure of rationality behind what taylor lorenz is doing but again i'm not just i'm not just attributing some sort of sheer cynicism to her i do think she's sincere and that's why she's um so insisted on continuing with this subject uh, incessantly um she's getting a lot yeah. of press out of it so yep. if everyone just ignored it uh you know i think that might 
that might not encourage as much of it, but also just if you could just for my sake, for the sake of conservatives, not fearing as like totally heartless and encouraging bad behavior, really say like out loud, this behavior is the behavior of small minded jerks who can't have a reasonable conversation. When your comeback is, I'm going to dox you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to rape you, you're fat, blah, blah, whatever. Like, you're an idiot. And we don't need I mean, but do, do, does anyone really need me to clarify that? Telling someone they're, that they're going to be raped is bad. Is, is that like? Is do I need to say that, or is that just some sort of gesture? You know, you'd hope, but uh, or, or ritual? Because, like, I mean, I mean, if I do need to say it, then okay, I say, I hereby say that it's bad. I mean, but it just seems like a redundancy that like actually doesn't accomplish anything other than like kind of accepting a premise that I don't uh, accepting a premise that like this is actually a worthy topic. Um, yeah, I would say all of this bad behavior does not advance anything good. Um, it advances everything bad. It puts us into a more argumentative, politically divided, unhappy place where one in five Americans is already depressed and, and like one in 20 ready to kill themselves. So if we could just like start saying like, quit being a jerk, like in all of its forms, uh, sub rape, super rape, like above and below that line, just, you know, and when you're dealing with people online, if you're not going to say it to me in public in front of me, where I'm going to like react in a way that you might not enjoy don't say it to me ever. So, you know, I think if you could just well, I, I'm that, not sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm not sure how effective it's going to be just to exhort people in the internet to stop being a jerk. Uh, I don't know that that's good. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know that that's going to actually reduce the number of jerks on the, on the internet. I think what I try to do as a salutary tactic is to continuously offer the ability of pe to people who have genuine criticism of me or want to raise objections to me in a substantive fashion. I give them the opportunity to do so, whether, you know, on Twitter, or even Colin with the most recent show I did was actually a journalist who had criticized me and we ended up having a um, fairly, I think, productive discussion. I've, I've always had that sort of mentality as to like, what's the best, what's the most fruitful way to kind of, um, use these instances of just kind of frivol uh, frivolously ridiculous trolling and try to make something productive out of them. Um, and that's what I think I can do, which probably is more effective than just like, I don't know, what should I do? Tweet out every couple of days, please don't be a jerk. I don't know what that's going to accomplish. But oh, I, no, take, I, take your, I take your point. I take your point in general. Though. Okay, awesome. That's, that's um, all I wanted right. to say was like the normalizing of jerkness and, and jerkitude could really just use a, a simmer down, quit being a jerk. It's not appealing. It's not attractive. And it doesn't help literally anything. Have a discussion. I think that's great. And I'm out. Thank you so much. All right. Well, uh, your, your denunciation of jerkitude is uh, noted for the record. Thank you, Scarlett. Uh, okay, let's go to uh, Lance. Oh, hi. Hi. You're up. You know, so as a previous caller, I think we have this impression that there's some kind of like uh, dissension of civility. In other words, you read the Federalist Papers and uh, all of the you know treatises of the founders that that's what people t all talked like then, and that slowly you know society you know now we have this horrible you know okay at the time the Federalist Papers were being distributed to the newspapers you know a, a, you know in uh, pseudonymously so that it would be not. A tied to a particular person and uh, whatever faction that they were, uh, you know, Hamilton, whoever, fine, that's, uh, that's on. But at the same time, they were what were called broadside, one-page pamphlets. So, in other words, when Jefferson was running for president, they knew about Sally Hemings. This wasn't something that came out later with DNA testing. 
he was excoriated. Andrew Jackson's wife. I mean, she was, you know, whatever you think about Jackson being a, a, a genocidal, you know, anti-indigenous people. But I believe it was his wife. She had had an adulterous affair or something. And they just tore her to shreds. They were really down and dirty. They called people animals. They, they threatened them with everything you can imagine that could be online. And one, I'll just throw this in. When we talk about Taylor Lawrence, Glenn Greenwald was threatened by the government of Brazil. He had to have, he was required, not, not told he should. He was required for his own safety by laws because they would be responsible for him to have armed guard because of the attacks that he was uh, enduring. And for, for, and the for thing, and, and sorry to interrupt, but before I forget, I mean, that's so ridiculous. And I, I, I should stop interrupting my call, I guess, because it's rude. But no, I just no. have to say that, you know, what supposedly, if you look at this NYU study of so-called gender-based uh, online violence, they're saying that Greenwald, because he's a white male, is responsible for this vast kind of tsunami of harm that Lorenz was subject to. But if you look at what his original tweet, and they're basing this because he tweeted something critical of her. The tweet from Greenwald, which I recall from the time, I think it was like March of 2021, the tweet was just purely substantive. I mean, it wasn't a personal attack on her. It wasn't a, It wasn't calling her ugly or call, telling her she should be raped or uh, otherwise going after her on any kinds of any kind of these crude personal grounds. It was a criticism of her professional output on the substance. And yet somehow, you know, a year later, they can do this elaborate study and blame him as somehow res- personally responsible for like rape threats against this adult journalist because he leveled a substantive critique of a New York Times journalist. I mean, it's so ridiculous that you'd think more people would be (laughs) just flatly dismissive of it, but this is is actually a a very mainstream accepted uh, interpretation of how online discourse uh, functions at the moment. Yeah. No, no. I mean, just stay with that point. That's what they do, and that's what they think their job is. And what's weird, I think, Michael, is that I think they actually believe it. It's just bizarre. I don't think they're like, hey, man, let's go ahead and put this out. Maybe they sit with the producers and they come up with the actual storyline. But I think they think that, like, this this is this is good. Here's what I mean. So, so in other words, you know, going online uh, – so these things are not uh, – the thing itself, it's not, that's not what matters. So in other words, what they said was it's because he triggered these other people. So you got to give him, if you want to give him that, that argument, that hypothesis, then yes, you have to say, well, this guy had a bunch of uh, anti, you know, he, he was told by Bernie Sanders and he loved Bernie Sanders. And that's why he went and killed or tried to kill Scalise. You got to grant that because that's what you're saying. You're saying that your speech, however innocent, triggered a bunch of weirdo bad stuff. So now you've got to go back to the original statement. And that goes back to why their whole job now is what I was going to say is to clean up all this speech, to clean up all this stuff that's going to trigger anything. And, you know, uh, well, you're right. I think you're you're actually you're you're right to bring up that incident from 2017, which I've gone to come back to a couple of times to make very similar points to the ones you're making, because I mean, that was that was that was that was one of the most extreme incidents of genuine political violence that has occurred in recent American history. Right. It was a deranged guy who if you look at his public 
social media profiles was an avowed supporter of Bernie Sanders, hated Republicans. And what did he do? Well, he tried to mass murder them and nearly killed the House uh, majority whip at the time, Steve Scalise, uh, opened fire on a group of Republicans. And um, I'm sorry, there just wasn't the charity. Uh, There is there, there was a lot of reticence to any attribute any kind of causal relationship between that guy's stated political beliefs and his act of violence. Um, right. But, but, but there's like an underlying logic there that keeps getting affirmed. Whereas, you know, I guarantee you that if God forbid, I'm not remotely advocating or suggesting it would be good if this happened, I think it'd be horrible if it happened. But if, if let's say in theory, just for the sake of argument, Taylor Lorenz was attacked physically by somebody who didn't like her from the internet. Right. Um, do you, do you have any doubt that in a split second it would be blamed on Glenn Greenwald and Tucker Carlson? Why? Because they they had some of this this tangential responsibility for fomenting um, antagonism toward Taylor Lorenz, right? And that same argument could, if you accept the premises of, of that attribution of blame, then Bernie yeah. Sanders should have been held responsible for the mass murder uh, or the attempted mass murder of Republican. Senators and congressmen in 2017, but he rightly was not because the logic doesn't hold up, right? Right, right. Um, but but, but yeah. go one step further, Michael, right, where the Bernie bros, remember? The Bernie yeah, bros, yeah. it was violent, misogynistic, potentially triggering bad stuff online that we have to go with Hillary. And it, it's all, they're, 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 they're destroying Hillary because these are all just misogynist Bernie bros when much of his support, of course, was from women. So their logic is completely like, don't you have to blame this guy? It's all these Bernie bros that are inciting all this violence online. Now a real Bernie bro went and did this. It's like, well, yeah, but we don't want to attribute it. Aha. So you know what I mean? It's even reinforced by all the crap they said about Bernie bros. So, oh, then you really didn't mean that stuff about Bernie bros? They really didn't trigger all that violence? You can't have it both ways, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, thanks, Lance. Going to go to the uh, next caller here. Sal, you are up. Oh. Last thought about how they changed. Yeah. So uh, my point is about the way they try to like basically enforce censorship. Uh, And when these corporate journalists get a lot of things wrong or they themselves resort to ad hominems or they attribute things that aren't true, like Taylor Lorenz uh, with the clubhouse where she uh, accused uh, someone wrongly of using the R word and it wasn't them. And then suddenly they're above the law. Uh, the rules that apply to others do not apply to them. And then uh, to tie that in with the way they're trivializing uh, Putin with uh, or attributing him with, with Hitler, if you look at the, the numbers, at least the latest numbers I saw from the UN, it's only 1,232 deaths in Ukraine. Not to trivialize that number, it's still a lot, but it's not in the millions. Yet others who have committed millions of deaths uh, either through drone strikes or uh, uh, other wars, they're not the Hitler. So doesn't this lead to the public just not trusting corporate journals anymore? And isn't that why they're resorting to censorship? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, there were uh, 6,616 civilians killed by U.S. forces between uh, March and May of 2003 in the beginning of the invasion of Iraq. 
six, and this is according to the Iraq Body Count Project. Maybe you could dispute their methodology or whatever, but it seems to be a fairly reliable source for these data. Um, and, you know, that was just during uh, like a, basically a two-month period. Now, I don't know if we have a full picture of the number of civilian deaths uh, in Ukraine. Maybe it's dwarfed that. Maybe it hasn't. Um, but the, <laughs> the point is, like, assuming that the UN figure is right and um, or, or roughly right, it would still be substantially fewer civilians that were killed in the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And I know people claim to now be against the invasion of Iraq in hindsight, but there was there was a, a lot of very uh, very much virulent consensus behind that at the time. And so I just don't really buy the sincerity of a lot of this preening about the humanitarian toll of the Ukraine. War. I mean, I think that the one of the reasons I personally regard the invasion as definitely unjustified is because of the humanitarian uh, fallout. Uh, whether it's the, the people displaced who have to who are fleeing the country or the uh, actual casualties, but th- this idea that it's this singularly horrific event in human history, such that a Hitler comparison is warranted. Uh, it, it seems to me just this totally motivated reasoning on overdrive with designed to inflate the supposed evil on display here and therefore justify a whole suite of policies, whether it be the giant arms funneling operation, whether it be regime change in Russia itself, whether it be sanctions designed ex- uh, explicitly to inflict suffering on Russian civilians, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a lot of this inflation of the humanitarian toll, bad as it though it may be, I'm not denying that for a second, but the, 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 the extremely histrionic exaggeration of it seemingly um, to the point that it's now hit, regarded as Hitler-esque, that's all for a very specific you know, ideological slash political slash kind of power uh, hegemonic purpose. And I think that's worth worth bearing in mind, uh, especially if at least according to the latest figures, it's dwarfed by the Iraq war. I'm not saying the, the badness of the Iraq war makes every future, every bad future event, um, you know, not as bad by comparison, but it is worth bearing in mind the comparison if you're making these grand moral and uh, sweeping kind of historical analogies about how you know, supposedly on the order of, of uh, Hitler's reign of terror. I mean, that doesn't really seem to make much sense. Um, all right, well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Sal. going to try to go through these next two uh, callers relatively quickly. Thanks, everybody, for joining as usual. Jenny, hello again. Hey, Michael. I uh, think we can all agree there's been a campaign against anti-vaxxers the last couple of years. And as someone who has been a long-term anti-vaxxing journalist and blogger, uh, I can tell you that some of us have experienced five of the six ways from Sunday that Chuck Schumer talked about in terms of (laughs) retribution for our journalism. And when I see someone like Taylor, that was, that was just so people, maybe people have forgotten or they never were aware, but that was the famous comment that Chuck Schumer made in December of 2016, I believe on the Rachel Maddow show saying that the U S intelligence services could get back at you five ways from Sunday if you go against the official line. He was basically threatening Trump and Trump's uh, um, you know, personnel uh, for 
the what was in store with them as the uh, CIA slash FBI slash NSA sought retribution against them for supposedly colluding with Putin or whatever. Thanks for fleshing that out. Uh, I always chuckle when I see CIA agents depicted with guns because these people are the masters of chemical and biological warfare and they use it. And my point is that when I see someone like Taylor on live television crying because her life is so hard with these mean tweets, I would just like to say that when you are dealt with for your activism, nobody announces it. Nobody sends you an email. Nobody texts and says, oh, you're in big trouble. They just show up and do it. That's that's the type of retribution that that we need to be nervous about. And to the point that another caller made that there's all these mean people, conservatives on the right, threatening and menacing people with their mean tweets and and threats. Um, There is an army of trolls out there making people like Bernie bros and conservatives look really, really bad. So unless if you know that as someone in real life who has a real face and a real name making those menacing comments, you can just flush most of those bots down the toilet because there is an attempt to shut all of us up. And if they can get Taylor screaming and crying about Tucker and Glenn Greenwald and all these other people and how evil they are, and they just agitate and agitate and I'm in danger. No, no, no. I don't even want to hear it. So thanks for taking my call. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just from my own uh, standpoint, I can report that the intensity of the trolling that I've personally received since the invasion started in uh, late February has uh, exceeds the intensity of any other past instance of trolling that I have uh, personally experienced. And I've experienced many episodes of pretty deliberate trolling um, just in terms of the, uh, the persistence of it and the, uh, the unyieldingness of it, if that's a word, meaning it's just over and over constants. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, it does, it strikes me that some of these people behind the kind of new sprawling trolling network directed at me are probably like actual people, meaning not full on bots. But then I don't know for sure. Um, I'm sure people just, there are people who just generally don't like me and think that it's a good use of their time to spend day after day kind of orchestrating trolling against me, which, you know, more power to them, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I mean, when, when, you, when you can't verify who any of them are and when uh, there's nothing really you can do about it, I think it's prudent to not make any too firm kind of uh, extrapolations factually about their providence. Um, so anyway, all right, thanks, uh, Jenny. And then last caller is uh, Laura. You are up. Hi, Michael. Um, I have a different perspective on this and the fact that I am um, I was born in Mexico and I know what journalists that are harassed are uh, go through, especially women who are reporting yeah. on the narco right? wars. <laughs> what Taylor Lorenz is doing is awful because she's tribalizing real journalism. Her TikTok stories and reporting on boomers and playing with teenagers to for clout is not what you would call important journalism. I mean, it's important because we live in the digital age, but she's somebody who's constantly punching down on women, on entrepreneurs. She has destroyed the life of many entrepreneurs and uh, punches up on powerful men to play the victim card after. So for her to go on national television and play those, I mean, cry those crocodile tears when literally three months ago, this huge journalist in Mexico was murdered. 
it's um it's really an insult to a lot of women in general. Yeah. Well, I mean <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I, I take the point I but at the same time, you know, if she genuinely believed that her experience was of social significance and ought to be reported because it has some wider meaning that we should all be cognizant of, I don't think the fact that there are journalists in Mexico who have been physically disappeared necessarily undermines her case for making that argument on behalf of herself. The point is that her case is flawed. Like, it's, it's not that she has no right to make it, right, or that it's, it's not that she's necessarily claiming that her plight is worse than journalists elsewhere in the world who have had more kind of tangible physical uh, repercussions inflicted on them. The point is that she's just um, the whole, their whole pretension, her whole construction of a narrative to me um, is, is flawed just on its own terms, not even necessarily by comparison to other uh, journalists. If that makes sense. So I think the best way to kind of deal with what she's, this philosophy that she's presenting and that gets so much kind of credulous affirmation by her peers in the media industry is to kind of dissect it on its own merits, which and those merits are very much lacking rather than say, Oh look, she has, it's so much better than these other journalists. And that's, you know, a legitimate maybe point to make for context, I would say, but at least in terms of rebutting the uh, argument itself, it's better to just kind of to take her at her word, right? And then that provides a better angle to show why her sincere beliefs are actually extremely uh, mistaken and misguided, misguided and actually uh, distortive in terms of the uh, worldview that they help to popularize. The thing is that you can have your cake and eat it too, in the sense that if you're a public figure, you are, I mean, it comes with the territory and she's not the only woman. There's plenty of other people on Instagram who are called, uh, especially older influencers, old hags. I mean, really awful things. I've seen the trolling on your Twitter. You see it everywhere. It just comes with the territory. One, the better known you become, the more somebody's going to have to say to you whether they agree or not with you. And to place the whole plight of journalism or women or our situation on the focus on what she goes through makes it, I mean, it's, I think you think that it's, she has a good intention. But it's almost very no. A good intention. Even- I think she has a sincere atten- intention. I think her the 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 consequences of what she's doing are bad. But I I don't doubt her sincerity. It doesn't mean that she's. I mean, you know, people somebody can be sincere can be sincere and also very much misguided. So, but I, I think actually granting her sincerity is uh, allows you to have a much more accurate window into what is motivating her. That, that's just my that's my point about how I sort of interpret her. Cool. Thanks. Yep. Anyway, thanks. Thanks. But thanks for the point, Laura. It's sort of, it, it is interesting. Um, all right. Uh, going to end the room there. Thanks everybody as usual for, uh, joining and, uh, we'll do it again in the not too distant future. So have a nice rest of your weekend. Bye-bye.